Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our seniors minister, Jack Hall, as he brings today's lesson. In the time of Jesus Christ's time on earth, there were three major sects, S-E-C-T-S, of the Jewish people. There were the Pharisees who believed in the oral law, and they believed also in the afterlife. They believed in the keeping of ceremony and tradition. There were Sadducees who were rather wealthy, mostly. They held to the written law and rejected completely the oral law, and they did not believe in the resurrection or an afterlife. The third group was called Essenes. These were Jews who were kind of fed up with the other two parties, and so they went off and built monasteries. When you think of monasteries off in a distance, up on a mountain, they were the Essenes, and they spent their time in prayer and in study. The Pharisees were very strict enemies of Jesus Christ. The phrase, woe unto you, or woe to you, is found 79 times in the Bible. 21 of those are directed toward the Pharisees by Jesus Christ. Now we know what that means, woe unto you. That means look out. There's going to be trouble. Something bad is coming. It's just around the corner. Woe unto you. And the reason that Jesus so often used that phrase to the Pharisees is because of the Pharisees' insistence that God had given the children of Israel two laws. One was the written law, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. It was written down. They had a written law. But the Pharisees taught that in addition to that, throughout the ages, through the prophets, God continued to reveal himself and he codified, if you will, that written law. There are many times when God would say in the written law that you should do this, but he never specifically described how to do it. And so the Pharisees came along and they wrote their own concordance, if you will, their own commentary. They would take the written law, and then they would take the present-day circumstances, and they would say, this oral law helps us to understand the written law, and therefore it is, has the same authority as the written law. And many times when the Pharisees would talk about Jesus and how his disciples did not keep the law, what they were talking about 
were the traditions that they added through what they called the oral law. And so Jesus, particularly in Matthew chapter 23, he calls these people out and he tells them, what you are teaching is not the word. What you are teaching is not the oral word, but it is your explanation of the written law. And they have taught these things so long, they have been handed down from generation to generation for so many years that the people just accepted them as part of the law. In the time of tabernacle worship or temple worship, the Sadducees were the big dogs on the block because they considered themselves to be the keeper of the written law. And they totally rejected the oral law. When the kingdom was divided and the ten tribes went off and left two tribes in the south, that pretty well ended the tabernacle worship. Those people did not follow God. They built places to worship idols. They completely left God. They forgot his word. And so there was no temple or tabernacle worship. So now the Pharisees step in. And they start teaching synagogue worship. And they start teaching the traditions of the Pharisees. When they were carried off into exile, the Pharisees really rose to power. Again, there's no tabernacle worship. There's no centralized worship. And so they pushed the synagogue worship. By the time Christ was here, there were 480 known synagogues of Jewish worship. That was from the Pharisees. So Jesus, every time they would confront him, why don't you do this? Why haven't you done that? This is what the law says. And Jesus, woe to you. Because that's not what the law says. That's what you say the oral law says. And you have taught it so long, it's become an accepted tradition. Now I'm going to share with you the story that every one of you knows. So I'm not telling you a joke. I'm not expecting any kind of response. But I do think it will help you understand about the handing down of tradition. Woman cooking a ham, you know the story. She cuts it before she cooks it, puts one part in the pan. Her daughter asked her one day, why do you cut the butt off the ham? Well, I'm not really sure, that's what my mother did. So she called her mother. Mother, why do you cut the butt off of the ham before you put it in the pot? I don't know, that's what my mother did. So she calls the grandmother. Grandmother, why do you cut the butt off the ham before you put it in the pot? 
because I don't have a pot big enough for the whole ham. You see what's happened? A tradition began simply because there was no pan large enough to hold the whole ham. And so the descendants just assumed that there must be a reason. And so it was handed down from generation to generation that you cut the butt off the ham. And that's what happened in the days of the Pharisees. I want to share some examples of Old Testament laws which were written down. And then we're going to look at the traditions that the Pharisees added to the Old Testament laws. And we're going to begin with the Sabbath. We read in Exodus chapter 20, which we heard just a few moments ago, beginning in verse 8, as part of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who was in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Notice the Lord does not identify labor. I want to say that again. He said, keep the Sabbath day. Do no labor. But he doesn't define labor. So let me ask you a question. Could you brush your teeth on the Sabbath day? Is that labor? What about feeding your pet? Is that labor? What about putting your clothes on? Is that labor? So the Pharisees come along and said, look, there's nothing in the written word that really tells us how to keep the Sabbath. So through the oral word, we have been told what you cannot do on the Sabbath. And they codified the keeping of the Sabbath and came up with 39 specific works that were prohibited. They were not, for instance, you could not clean dried mud from your boots. Now here's the written law. Keep the Sabbath, do no labor. And so the Pharisee says, well, he doesn't tell us what the labor is, so we'll codify it. And one of the things you cannot do, considered labor, is you cannot clean your boots on the Sabbath. You cannot write or erase anything. You can't tie a knot. You cannot add fresh water to a vase. Think about that. You have a flower. It's in water. It's in a vase. It needs water. But you can't put it in there on the Sabbath. That's considered 
labor. <laughs> this one is funny. You cannot clip your toenails or your fingernails on the Sabbath because that's considered labor. You could not separate good fruit from bad fruit. You could not thread a needle, and that's enough to give you an example of how the Pharisees and their oral law tried to codify the written law. Now, in other places in Scripture, God kind of does describe labor that's prohibited on the Sabbath day. In the book of Exodus, chapter 34 and verse 21, we find that field labor is not to be done on the Sabbath. We find in Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 15 through 18, that you cannot tread in the wine press on the day of the Sabbath. In Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13, and in Amos chapter 8 and verse 5, it prohibits what the Bible says, the doing of business. The doing of business. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 29, travel was forbidden. And in Exodus 35, 2 through 8, they were not allowed to kindle a fire. So when you read this, and we see that the Sabbath is being practiced, it seems that the labor that God is not allowing on the Sabbath day is simply doing business, making a living. Take a day off. Rest. Don't go into the fields. Don't do any commerce. You don't have to travel anywhere. But the Pharisees come along and say, we are the ones who can tell you what you can and cannot do. And from the time of the divided kingdom until Jesus came on the scene, think of all those generations that the Pharisees had taught. And now people just accept it as the truth. Here's another example. In Mark chapter 7, in the first nine verses, Jesus has a confrontation with the Pharisees about the washing of hands. And they are terribly upset with Christ because he nor his disciples washed their hands, and the Bible says, in a certain way before they ate. There's nothing in the written law that requires the washing of hands before you eat. Now, it's a good thing, hygienically. We certainly practice that. But the written law does not specify that you have to wash your hands before you eat. The Pharisees came along and not only made it required that you wash your hands, but there is a certain ceremony that you have to go through. And so when you read, it says, Jesus was commenting that you require people to wash their hands in a certain way. 
You have created a ceremony of washing hands when it does not exist in the law. Another example. Matthew chapter 9. He is called a hypocrite. Not, they didn't call him that word. But they just could not accept him as the son of God. If, if he's not going to keep the Sabbath the way we say, if he is not going to wash his hands the way we say, then how can this man possibly be the Son of God? He, he just can't be the Son of God. Now, he doesn't even fast. And his disciples don't even fast. And you know, Christ warned them about fasting and the Pharisees. They get this look and they want you to know how miserable they are. And the more we fast, the more... Uh, we, the closer we are to God, and therefore they required frequent fastings. The truth is, under the old law, there were some required fasts, but they were very few. And there were examples of people who fasted for particular reasons before they would go into battle, those kinds of things. But the oral law that the Pharisees are teaching required frequent fastings. And if you don't do these fastings, then obviously you can't be pleasing in the sight of God. And Jesus says, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know the law. I know that Old Testament law. And it does not require frequent fastings. Now, if we choose to fast, there's nothing wrong with that. If we choose for a short time or for a long time to give up food or something else, drink, that's fine. But it's not required. And you stop teaching which that which is not required. But they had been teaching it so long. It's like the ham being cut before it goes in the pot. And the people just accept it as part of the law. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5. Jesus comments on the phylacteries and the thrill, frills that they put on their garments, the Pharisees. Because they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be noticed. If they go into the marketplace, if they're walking down the street, they want you to be able to recognize them because of how they have decorated their clothes. <laughs> Jesus says, decoration of clothes has absolutely nothing to do with the Old Testament law. Nothing. And so you are the ones who are teaching the traditions of men and then you're blaming me and my disciples for not keeping what you say the law says. Another example. This is one I really appreciate. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 20, or chapter 12, Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, after the disciples have gone to Mount Olivet to see Jesus ascend back to heaven, the Bible says that they returned to Jerusalem, which is a Sabbath day's journey. You heard the phrase, a Sabbath day's journey? Do you know that nowhere in Scripture is that defined? 
God never set a distance for the Sabbath day's uh, walking or traveling. But the Pharisees did. Through their oral law, through their interpretation of the written law, somehow they came up with a thousand kilometers. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 2,000 cubic meters, which is about one kilometer. In other words, from your house in a circle, you can travel about one kilometer. There, back, there, and back, there, and back. A Sabbath day's journey, says who? The Pharisees. There is no regulation recorded in Scripture. We've all heard the phrase, a day's journey, right? Not a Sabbath day's journey, but they're going to travel a day's journey. You know that phrase is not in Scripture? You can read it from cover to cover. You will not find that phrase, a day's journey. But the Pharisees say, hey, we, 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 can, we can help you on that. A day's journey is about 25 kilometers. Where'd they get that number? I have no clue. But they taught it and they taught it and they taught it until the Jews believed it, believed it, believed it. We can only travel one kilometer and if we're going to travel at all, we have to limit it to 15 kilometers. And then when they look at Jesus and say, well, why don't you keep the law? Why don't you wash your hands? Why don't you fast? Why do you tread the wheat so the disciples can eat? Why do you do all of these things or don't do all of these things? And Jesus says, woe to you. These things are not required in Scripture. They are traditions that you have added throughout the ages and you expect us to keep traditions of men rather than following the law of God. Now this next one may be my favorite. The word korban, you've heard it? Korban. We find it in Mark chapter 7 and verse 11. And Jesus is schooling them on the Ten Commandments. And he's reminding them that they are to honor their father and their mother. That's written. But you know what the Pharisees have done? They say, our possessions, we have identified it as korban, C-O-R-B-A-N. That means a gift to God. And if we have set aside our possessions as korban, then we are released from the requirement to take care of our parents. After all, this is now the Lord's money. This is the temple's money. And I can't use this to take care of my family. <laughs> you understand why Jesus was at crossroads with these people constantly? The Ten Commandments were written pretty plainly. And yet 
the Pharisees were constantly complaining to Christ and his disciples that they weren't keeping the Ten Commandments when they were. What they were not keeping was the tradition of the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus called them out. And in Matthew chapter 23, go home and read it. He calls them vipers. <laughs> he calls them hypocrites. He says they're like tombs. The tombstone is shiny and bright and clean, but in the grave it's rotten because you follow your ceremonies rather than the written law. Now, we need to understand that the word tradition is not good or bad. A tradition is that which is handed down from one generation to another. We go back to the ham story. It just becomes a tradition because we have been doing it for so long. Some of those are forbidden. Sometimes a tradition is bad because it conflicts with the Word of God. Here are a few examples. Mark chapter 7 and verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Notice, holding the tradition of the elders. You see, that's a tradition that is man-made. And it's in conflict with God's Word. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 8, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Tradition of man versus the word of God. Mark chapter 7 and verse 9, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Mark 7 verse 13, marking the, you are making the word of God of no effect. How? Through your tradition which you have handed down and many other such things you do. But now the Bible teaches that there are some traditions which should be kept. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul warns the conditions, or the um, Corinthians, he warns the Corinthians to keep the traditions that he taught them. What are the traditions? It's the traditions of the apostles, the preaching of the word of God, the meeting together on the first day of the week, worshiping God according to his pattern. That is a tradition that has been handed down since Peter's Sermon on the Mount, and it should be continued, and it does not violate God's law. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, hold fast the traditions you were taught. How many times do we talk about younger people and how difficult it is to keep them in church? Because Tradition comes along and draws them away. But the tradition that we need to teach them over and over again is God's plan of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And that needs to be preached and preached and preached. Why was Jesus so upset with the Pharisees? Because of their tradition, which they had taught so long, that had become accepted by the people. But Jesus says, that is the wrong tradition. Keep the tradition of God. And that's what we need to do today. We need to look at, at these examples and many, many others in Scripture. Is it from Scripture or is it from man? If it's from Scripture, we need to obey it. If it's from man, we need to question it. You know, the Church of Christ is full of traditions. Ever since I've been a member of the church, we always passed the communion items. We passed the plate for the collection. It was a tradition. That's how it was done. Now, during the pandemic, we learned it can be done different ways. And you know, not having that plate passed in front hasn't hurt the budget one bit, hasn't hurt the contribution one bit. People still know about giving. The little cups, which may be hard to open and you don't like the bread the way it tastes, I, I say amen to that. But it, it's a different tradition, right? We don't have to pass everything in order to be right. What about an invitation? I'm getting ready here in just a minute. We, we say we always offer an invitation. That's what it is. Anytime the church comes together, doesn't it make good common sense to not close that service until someone is given an opportunity to obey the gospel or to seek prayers on behalf of the congregation? Doesn't that make good sense? Well, it's a tradition. I've never been to a church of Christ on a Lord's Day that did not offer the invitation and that we stand and we sing a song. That is totally man's tradition, but it is totally in keeping with the word of God. So be careful of traditions. They can be right or they can be wrong based on whether they come from God or man and whether or not it complements or it takes away from the word of God. I pray today, if you've never obeyed the gospel, that this is the day. I pray that as we stand and as we sing, that it will encourage you to give your heart to God, accept Christ as your Savior, repent of your sins, be baptized, that His blood can cleanse you. If there's anything in your life that you need the prayers of this church, we'd be most happy to help you. Our shepherds will meet you down front as we stand and we sing. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m., followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.